Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, After Effect listeners. I'm Christopher Wirth, senior editor here at WNYC. It's been a while since you heard from us here, but if you enjoyed the story we told you about Arnaldo Rios Soto, about the injustice he suffered, and all of Audrey Quinn's reporting to hold people accountable, then I want to introduce you to our new podcast. It's called The Stakes, and it's hosted by Kai Wright of USM Anxiety and There Goes the Neighborhood fame. The Stakes is all about understanding the society we've built, to look at its design and the choices we've made, the choices that have led us to where we are now. In this episode, my colleague Verilyn Williams dives into the staggering statistics around maternal mortality for Black women in the United States and what it's like to even think about giving birth while facing those numbers. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or at WNYC.org, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Here's the show. Hi, right, and these are the stakes. In this episode, a woke pregnancy. You okay? Somebody come in. Something is wrong with my sister here. Come on, come in, please, please, please. I don't know what's going on. Miss Brown, you okay? You okay? Oh my God, that's no You're listening to a simulation. We're at Woodhall Hospital in Brooklyn, and the staff are practicing what to do when a woman in labor is at risk of dying. New York City is paying for hospitals to run these drills because in a city with some of the most sophisticated health centers in the world, an alarming number of women die giving birth, or shortly thereafter. And not just any women, black women. So the numbers are a black woman in America is three to four times more likely to die than a white woman during pregnancy, childbirth, and in the year after the baby's born. This is Linda Villarosa, a New York Times contributor who's been reporting on black women's health for decades. And she says the numbers for infant mortality are just as startling. The racial disparity in infant mortality is actually wider now than it was in 1850 when women were enslaved. And that's because while the death rate for both white and black infants has gone down, childbirth for black people in America is now more than twice as likely to involve death. And like a lot of black women, Linda has been trying to figure out what's going on for a long time, ever since the late 1980s, when she was health editor of Essence magazine. Our approach always at Essence was you have the power to control your own health. Take care of your body. Go to the doctor. Have good prenatal care. And make sure the women around you do because infant mortality is a problem in our community. Now I look back at that with a little bit of embarrassment. But she was just working with the information she had. And at the time, the consensus view blamed the problem on inadequate education caused by poverty. But research has now established two clear factors driving this problem. The first is something called weathering, that the constant stress of experiencing racism is itself a health risk for Black people living in America. It weathers your body. And that leads to all kinds of health problems for Black people, including problems in pregnancy, which then leads to lower birth weights for infants. The second factor is, well, also racism. There's a growing body of research suggesting that physicians simply don't listen to Black women when they speak up about what's happening in their bodies. And so they fail to notice deadly complications until it's too late. 
Black people are simply not treated the same way in the healthcare system. And women are not heard, they're not treated the same, and we don't get the same kind of care. So now what? We know the problem. And actually, a lot of people are finally talking about it. It's even come up in the presidential campaign. But the numbers have not changed. So what are Black women supposed to do with this information as they think about pregnancy? That's the question our producer, Virlyn Williams, is trying to answer. I know having a baby is risky. And the older you are, the more likely it is something can go wrong. I mean, once a pregnant person turns 35, they officially move into what's called a geriatric pregnancy. And I'm 18 months away from turning 35. So yeah, I'm thinking about it. Especially when I hang out with my friend Leanne. More than anyone else in my life, she wants me to have a baby. I do? Oh yeah, I kind of do. I kind of. We're the same age, but Leanne has been a wife and mother since the day I met her. It's, I don't mean to apply pressure, but, but I do think that you would make a good mother. You want a little virulent. But you do understand Verilyn when you... Junior. When you say that, you're like signing me up for like everything you just went through. And what's wrong with that? As I sit with Leanne in her living room, her smiling baby on her lap, I can feel the joy of motherhood. But honestly, it's always scared me. Creating a person and signing them up for everything that comes with being Black in America, I just don't know. And then there are the headlines and the calls for action that remind me just how much greater my chances are to die giving birth. It's all extremely overwhelming. Especially knowing that where I live, New York City, black women are eight times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications than white women. And this comes up anytime a friend tells me that they are pregnant. Leanne's announcement was no different. I was like, so now that I have confirmed that I'm pregnant, um, you know, I really want a, a woke pregnancy. This is what I labeled it, a woke pregnancy, which basically means like, any choices that I had to make around my pregnancy, I wanted to be fully involved. Where did that come from? I mean, that came from ultimately my first birthing experience with my oldest child, who's eight. I was on Medicaid. I was alone. You know, I'm not alone, but I wasn't a wife at the time. I just felt like I was just another young black chick who was on display. I mean, there was there was residents in and out. I hated that, you know, because it was such an interruption and just not knowing who 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 are you, uh, and you know, you're in your most vulnerable state. Up until this point, I've mostly thought of vulnerability as a choice that I could decide if I want to be vulnerable with someone or something. But literally, there is no other way to give birth. Leanne made it through her first pregnancy with a healthy child, but there were complications during labor. After she gave birth to her oldest son, nurses held him up so she could see his face, and then they took him away. Almost two hours passed before they let her hold him. Turns out his heart rate slowed down and he was in distress, but no one told her that. It was just a lot, and that essential bonding time that has been scientifically shown that helps the bonding of the mother and child. I did not have that. You know, so all of that was kind of ripped away from me and and I didn't have a clue. I didn't even know that I was missing something. When she got pregnant the second time, Leanne made a plan. She spent four months looking for a midwife that was covered under her insurance. She took classes so she would qualify to have her baby in a birthing center. She hired a doula that reminded her that she can do it because her body was made for this. 
She knew she did not want an episiotomy again, and that she did want Afrobeats in her ear. Yet, the day she went into labor, things did not go as planned. Her blood pressure spiked, and her midwife immediately told her she no longer qualified for the birthing center. I was like, but isn't it normal that someone in labor would have elevated blood pressure for a minute? Like, why is that so strange? Her midwife was doing her job. High blood pressure is dangerous and can be a symptom of complications that can be fatal. And she was like, we just can't take chances. She's like, do you want to take a risk? The health of the baby and of the mother are of our primary concern. We have to do what we have. And I'm just like, oh, my God. I was like, I can't believe. I was like, you're trying to make my shit go to sleep. But this time, Leanne knew the questions to ask, and there was a conversation. Which is the other thing. It's a life lesson that, you know, plans, even though we try to make it, we're not the, the head planner. You know what I'm saying? Things are going to change, and you're going to have to roll with it, but I still want to be included. Ultimately, Leanne's pregnancy was woke. The doula, she turned the music up. Turned the music up, girl. And then so the labor and delivery nurse happened to be black. And she was like, this is the best birth. I love this birth. Girl, she came in there, she was like, oh. She's like, this is the best birth I've ever been to. I love this birth, the whole vibe in here. And the one white lady in there, which is the, the midwife, she's like, this is like black girl magic? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. On so many levels, I want to hold on to Leanne's story. To a world where the medical system can keep a woman safe and does not totally define how she becomes a mother. And I can trust that if and when I do decide to have that baby she wants me to have and I get educated and make a plan, everyone involved will be invested in my well-being. Unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence that that is not the world we live in. The idea that a Black woman can work her way out of the reality of what it means to be a Black woman structurally in our society is actually not true. Nobody knows that better than Chessie McMillan Cotton. She has a PhD in sociology and thinks a lot about Black womanhood. If anybody ever reads me, and especially a Black woman, realizes that she is not crazy, then I feel like I have done my life's work. I read her book, Thick. It's a book of essays where she writes that she's never felt more incompetent than when she was pregnant. It felt like a cautionary tale to never assume education or money can override being Black. My crude indicator was, oh, I'll choose an OBGYN practice on the good white side of town, right? As an indicator that this place is going to be high quality, have good resources, and maybe will kind of treat me like a white woman and that will improve my chances. And she was treated fine until her second trimester when she started bleeding at work. She called ahead to her doctor's office. She told them what was happening and that she was coming in. When she got there, she was asked to wait. And she suspects that everything that happened to her from that point on happened because she was Black. This is her telling her story in her audiobook. That day, I sat in the waiting room for 30 minutes. After I had bled through the nice chair in the waiting room, I told my husband to ask them again if perhaps I could be moved to a more private area to wait. The nurse looked alarmed about the chair and eventually ushered me back. When she finally did see a doctor, she was told she was spotting because she was too fat and that that was normal. So she went home 
But she was still in pain. Her butt hurt. She wasn't able to sleep. And when she called her doctor's office and told them this... The nurse said it was probably constipation. I should try to go to the bathroom. I tried that for all the next day and part of another. By the end of three days, my butt still hurt and I had not slept more than 15 minutes straight. She went back to the hospital knowing something else had to be wrong. She writes that eventually they decided to do an ultrasound. And the image showed that there were two benign tumors growing fast alongside her baby. So no, it wasn't gas. And when Chessie gave birth to her daughter prematurely, four days too early for medical intervention, her daughter died shortly after her first breath. How do we know that it's not just the one impatient doctor? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if it were the case that we were about just an individual uh, doctor, right, we wouldn't see the same sort of average experience happen in North Carolina that happens in Texas, that happens in New York, for example. Those are very different healthcare systems. So that's the place where we say, okay, then it can't just be about an individual patient who didn't know how to ask for care and an individual doctor who was having a bad week and didn't want to give me the care. At the time, Chessie didn't know that Black infants are twice as likely to die as white babies. I asked her if knowing would have made a difference. I'd like to think that if I did know, I would have been more assertive in trying to um, get the medical care I needed sooner. But then, again, my whole point is that I don't even know if I'd have been allowed to be more assertive on my behalf. That's the thing, that, right, when you become assertive um, within a system that only knows how to treat you, as an incompetent subject, when you become assertive, you become a problem for the healthcare system, and the healthcare system will then treat you as a problem. You get that? Simply being assertive in a system that doesn't believe you can make you a problem. I can't tell you how many times I've had experiences I just knew would be different if I wasn't just another black chick. It's happened at the airport when someone behind me tells me I'm in the priority line. And I roll my eyes internally, take a deep breath, and just say, I know. It's happened when paying with a credit card at a department store. But when it happens at a clinic and I need help, and I show a nurse practitioner pustules on my chest and stomach, and she tells me, that looks like herpes. And I tell her it stopped because, one, I had been reporting on sexual health for a long time, and two, I get tested every year like clockwork and just recently got a clean bill of health. But she's ignoring me. So I take her prescription for herpes medication, and I calmly request a referral to see the dermatologist on staff. And it turns out what I do have is a rare skin condition called subcorneal pustular dermatosis. So, yeah. You see why I don't feel free to be vulnerable? The thing is, this is an impossible conundrum, even for someone like Chessie, who thought she had hit all her marks. Married, highly educated, and well-employed. And so what we get are stories like, oh, the more educated a woman is, the more likely she is to have a safe and healthy birth. No, the more educated a white woman is. Right. Or, you know, married women are less likely to be poor and therefore have, you know, a better quality maternal health care. No, 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 no. White women have that story. Right. It is not true for black women. Why? Why do black women of any class? And this includes Serena Williams, who had a near death experience after she gave birth. 
Why do we all, on average, have the same risk of death when we walk into a hospital in labor? Because of generations of wealth inequality, segregation in schools, and segregation in our intimate lives, we assume all Black women are poor, right? That's the systemic part. The implicit bias part is that we have these beliefs about poor people because we think, oh, God, here they come again. They're going to be loud. They're not going to know how to fill out the forms. They're going to take so much of my time. Those are our implicit biases. Those two would then meet at a moment when a nurse looks at a Black woman across a desk and says, no matter who or what you are, in reality, you're about to be a problem for me. And so I'm going to manage and contain you rather than serve and help you. So, Kai, this is where the first leg of my reporting left me. Black women, we cannot change the way that we're perceived. I can have the medical insurance, the mm-hmm. husband, the education, but I cannot make a doctor who's sitting in front of me see me as vulnerable. Right. Which is crazy making that somehow you have to be able to mm-hmm. save your own life. And what it leaves me asking is where is the doctor's responsibility in all this? I mean, what, what are doctors doing? That's actually where my reporting picks up. I found an OBGYN doctor who's white, and I asked her what's going on in her head when she's sitting across from a pregnant black woman. Okay, well, that's after the break. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, We use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So, Kai, when I started researching doctors who have been thinking about these statistics Mm -hmm. and evaluating how they take care of black women, I was immediately directed to Dr. Deborah Cohan. She's white and wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's called, you ready? Okay. Racist Like Me. (laughs) Okay. And in it, she's examining her own implicit bias and how it affects the care that she's giving black women. And does she get specific? Does she have a specific case she talks about? Well, when we spoke, she told me about a time a pregnant woman was brought into her hospital after having an encounter with the police. So I was interacting with her, and it was just a flash of a moment that I saw in her a character from a movie I had seen. I noticed that. And then I invited myself, you know, I I asked myself, okay, how is this influencing my behavior right now? And I realized that I was sitting further away from her than I usually do. The movie was Sing. Do you know what that's about? I do not know that movie. It's a cartoon, and one of the characters is a gorilla who helps his dad commit robberies. I'm not proud of how that movie got into me, but there are a gang of gorillas who are criminals that feeds into so many just horrific stereotypes of Black people and how they've been compared to animals and how the stereotype of them is so wrapped up with criminal justice. So Cohen notices the association in the moment that she was making between this patient that was sitting in front of her and this character on the movie Sing. And she does move closer to her. Hmm. But as she admits, the damage was already done. 
we are asking women to really be vulnerable with us. So ultimately, I don't claim, I wouldn't claim to know what her experience was of that. What I can say, though, you know, generally, I actually get very close to my patients and I will typically use touch as a way of cultivating a therapeutic relationship. So it was very notable that I was not doing that with her. And many, most people of color will have a laundry list of stories where they sensed white people keeping physical distance from them. So much of the healthcare system, Kai, is so intimate, especially when I'm at my OBGYN office. Right. So I appreciate what Dr. Cohan is doing, you know, reflecting on home biases and calling on herself and other physicians to do better. All of that is really important in affecting change. It really is, and I hear that. But also, you know, there's urgency here. Black women are dying right now. And it's hard to just hear all of these individual efforts at change when what's really needed is something structural. That's what I'm looking to hear. Well, one structural solution is the simulation training we started the episode with. Right. New York City has thrown out some funding to get these trainings done because many of these deaths are avoidable. Being in the room was amazing. Everyone sprang into action. There was a timekeeper. Two nurses took turns giving CPR. Mm. An anesthesiologist was called. And before I could take it all in, the C-section was done and the baby was out safely. The entire thing lasted just under four minutes. And those 240 seconds are the most critical for the health of the mother and the baby. Okay, well, so, but what's the solution here? Why, why is this training important? Well, I spoke to Dr. Wendy Wilcox, who runs the whole department, and she said that these are the life or death decisions that have to be made fast. The whole point of having standardized care and standardized protocols is so that people actually go into motion without having to use judgment or thinking. It's practice. If I see someone unresponsive, I'm not registering her race, her color, her anything. I see an unresponsive patient. I go into motion with the actions that have been um, shown to be effective. So evidence-based, all of these simulations are based on science and evidence-based protocols. And so to have people react to the situation, not the individual patient. When there's a protocol, everyone from the nurse to the anesthesiologist to the doctor knows based on training where they need to be, they know exactly what equipment they need, and they know how long they have to do it. So this kind of thing may deal with part of the problem, the fact that implicit bias keeps doctors from hearing Black women when they say they're in distress, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then... There's this larger problem that the research has established, this thing of weathering in our bodies. Mm, yes. And I don't know where we start with that because nothing I have heard here, Verlin, feels like it's on scale with the urgency of that problem. Exactly. But, you know, I will say being in that room made me feel the same way Leanne's story did. It gave me some hope. And when I spoke to Helena Grant, the director of Midwifery, she told me the way that feeling manifests itself is through work. We do work together as a team. There is no um, body who's not valuable. There's nobody who can't speak up if they have an um, issue. And it's not perfect all the time. It takes work. And this whole movement behind maternal mortality and morbidity is going to take work. And we're working. 
Stakes is a production of WNYC Studios and the newsroom of WNYC. This episode was reported and produced by Vera Lynn Williams. It was edited by Karen Froman, who is also our executive producer. Casey Means is our technical director. Jim Schachter is vice president for news at WNYC. The Stakes team also includes Amanda Aronchik, Christopher Johnson, Johnny McCone, Jessica Miller, Kari Pitkin, and Christopher Wirth. With help from Hannes Brown, Jonathan Cabrera, Michelle Harris, and you. You can join the team too by signing up for our newsletter at thestakespodcast.org. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Kai underscore right. Thanks for listening. WNYC's health coverage and the stakes is supported in part by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Jane and Gerald Catcher and the Catcher Family Foundation, and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation.